Great to be with you all. Go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 1. While you're doing that, let me just introduce myself for those I haven't met. My name is Rob, and along with Lloyd, uh, we do most of the teaching. And if you're just getting to know us, we have two primary teachers and some other teachers that teach as well from time to time. We believe in team ministry. One of our core values is better together. And you'll see that core value kind of, you know, playing out in all kinds of different ways. Uh, one of the things that allows for us as teachers is we get two weeks to look at a text. And so we're writing a new message every two weeks rather than every one week. So it really allows us to marinate in it, to dig a little bit deeper than we might otherwise have time to do. So while I'm here teaching this text, Lloyd is at Brentwood teaching next week's text at Brentwood. And then he'll come down here next week and teach that message. So it's a really great way to do it. It's great for you all as well. If you're visiting, what you're going to find is Lloyd and I are aligned very much philosophically and theologically, but we have different styles, and we're going to come at it a little bit different. So over time, you're going to be able to grow from different angles and different styles. By the way, I look out there this morning, and I just see a lot of faces that I don't yet know. And if you're one of those faces, would you just grab me and come down after the message or grab me out there in the lobby? I would just love to put a name with a face and just say hello and uh, that, that would mean something to me. So we, we want to be a family here at Fellowship, and I would love to be able to get to know you as we walk together. Well, James is the book that we are in, and I think this is the fourth uh, week that we've been in James. I hesitate on that. I think it's number four. And you've already found out, if you've been tracking through this book with us, James is practical. James is intense. And this morning's text, which you just heard read, is no different than that. It's extremely practical. And it's really intense. We're going to get into it. Just a reminder, as we jump back in, James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church right at the beginning of the church movement. Most of the Christians had been scattered out of Jerusalem due to some persecution. And James is writing to them. He calls them the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations. And one of the first things he says is, listen, there's going to be trials that are coming to you. And, and this is true for us too, trials of various kinds. And he gets to verse 4 and he says, here's why the trials exist. Here's why God is allowing it. He actually has a purpose for them. And the purpose that God has for your trials, but also for everything that comes into your life, is right here in the back half of verse 4, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. And by the way, that word perfect, you know, it's not necessarily in this context referring to moral perfection. It's referring to wholeness, that you may be whole, you may be solid. And then he goes on to say complete, lacking nothing. This is God's plan that you grow into maturity, that you grow into completion. We call it here at Fellowship wholehearted life. That's found in Jesus Christ. So when I think of this person who is whole and complete, lacking nothing, I think of a human being fully alive, flourishing, at rest, comfortable in their own skin, pursuing what God has called them to, the relationships God has called them to, alive with a heart that's whole. That's God's desire for you. Now, we've been using this little illustration of the coin throughout the series, and we'll talk about it every single week. Just like there are two sides to a coin, there's two sides of faith. There's the faith side, there's the work side. James is saying you can't pull those two things apart. It's not like you can believe without your belief actually showing up in your life. And it's not like you can actually live for something if you don't believe in what you're living for. You should never pull those two things apart. Faith and works go together like two sides of a coin. You might say it this way. Faith works. Genuine, true, legitimate, real faith works. Another way you can think about it is the kind of faith that's true, that's solid, is the kind of faith that works. 
And so we're going to play out this tension and dynamic between the two sides of the coin, the faith and the works, and we'll apply that even in today's text when it relates to temptation. Now, let's dig into this. Up to this point, the trials that James has been addressing have been external trials. Now he shifts his attention to an internal thing, right? Temptation. And you know, everybody's like, uh-oh, here, here it comes, you know? It's, this is a, a sermon on sin. This is a sermon on temptation. Well, yes, because it's right here in the text. But let me tell you, as I've thought about this, I've thought most of us, maybe all of us, tend to misunderstand temptation and sin to such a degree that we're not finding life. Like in our struggle with temptation, God would design us for life, would desire life for us. And I want to unpack what that actually means. How do you engage in temptation in a wholehearted way, in a way that's going to lead to life? How do we think about sin? How do we think about temptation? We all have things we struggle with, right? I read a survey a week or two ago that said 90% of people struggle with temptation. The other 10% struggle with lying. It's just true. We all stumble. We all struggle. And the more that I pastor, the more convinced that I am that, that our own sin is actually robbing us of things, that it's destroying relationships. It's stealing joy. It's sapping energy. It's, it's robbing us of life. And so I get passionate today. I get passionate a lot, but if I get passionate today, it's because as one of your pastors, I desire life for you, and I desire life for me. And, and some of the stuff that we're struggling with, there's a better way. There's a better way. This text on temptation, I believe, uh, I don't know that there's a more helpful passage in all of Scripture about temptation than this one in James 1. And that's why I'm so eager to teach this morning. Um, there are five verses we'll cover, three parts of the text, three parts of the sermon. If you're a note taker, here, here's your outline. Something old we should let go. That's the first thing. There's something old related to temptation that we got to let go. Number two, something deep we must understand. So something old we should let go, something deep we must understand. And then the third is something new we can choose. Something new we can choose. Let's start with the first heading, something old we should let go. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. The old thing we should let go is blame shifting. Blame shifting. Uh, it's the human instinct to avoid responsibility. Isn't that true? Um, you don't have to have kids to know this, but you certainly see it in kids. And just when I think I'm seeing it in my kids, like, man, they're so selfish, and they're always blaming each other. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I look in my own heart, and I see the same thing. Um, tell me if any of this sounds a little bit familiar to you. If that person would just give me the respect or the love that I need, then I wouldn't struggle with such and such. How about this one? If those circumstances just weren't in my life, like if it just wasn't so hard, if life just worked the way it was supposed to work, then I wouldn't struggle with such and such. How about this one? If that person hadn't done this or that back there in my past, if I didn't have that woundedness in me, then maybe I could make new choices, et cetera, et cetera. At some point, you kind of run out of people and things around you to blame, and so inevitably, you're going to look up. 
You know, most of us don't start by blaming God, but eventually you kind of get there. It's like, he made me this way, or he allowed those things to happen, or he, he's the one that kind of allows the brokenness around me. And what's interesting right now in, in our society, if you think about it, is everybody's blaming someone else, and those people are blaming someone else. And it's the blame shifting is going around in a big circle. And well, it's the Republicans' fault. No, it's the Democrats' fault. No, it's the rich people's fault. No, it's the poor people's fault. No, it's the activists' fault. No, it's the people that are passive. It's their fault. You see, it just goes around society, and you know, and it's just a matter of time before people say, well, like God's in charge of this place. Is he not supposed to be? It must be his fault. Um, I don't have time to go where my brain just went, so I'm going to stick to my notes. <laughs> Why do I call this something old? Something old. Well, it's been around as long as human beings have been around. Okay, think about the garden. Genesis chapter 3, first temptation was to go outside of God's path of life. There was one fruit that God said, listen, all this other fruit's for life for you. There's one fruit that's for death. One fruit leads to death, right? And what happens? You see Adam and Eve are like, oh, that's what I want then, right? It's kind of human nature that way it works. They're tempted, eat the fruit. God, God calls them in, says, what's going on? God said to the man, this is Genesis 3, verse 11, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And it's a simple question. The, the man doesn't say, you know, yes, I own my responsibility. What the man says is, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. My goodness, he like got his wife and God in the blame shifting in one, in one <laughs> sentence, right? Then the Lord says to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. It's like, not my fault, it's the serpent's fault. And by the way, God, who put the serpent in the garden? You know, I didn't put that serpent in the garden. Eve is thinking, right? So she's blaming the serpent and God, you know, by extension, Adam's blaming his wife and God. Uh, no one is owning responsibility. And this is our instinct. James is saying, listen, God is not to blame. In fact, he's so far removed from evil that he cannot even be tempted by evil. And he's certainly not going to tempt you. Interesting historical context note. In the first century, right, the cultures that were surrounding the early Christians, okay, other than the Jews, there were the pagans. Now, the pagans weren't necessarily people that didn't believe in God. Like Most of them believed in some kind of God. It just wasn't the one true God. What kind of gods did they believe in? Well, the Greek gods, Greek culture was still dominant in that area. The Roman gods, the Roman you know, empire was at rule at this time. What do you know about Greek and Roman gods? You studied them and all the mythologies of Greek and Roman gods. Those gods are selfish. Those gods are manipulative. Those gods are constantly like stealing stuff from each other and doing all kinds of things. And, you know, they're up to mischief. Those, those kinds of gods are. James is essentially saying the one true God is not like those other so-called gods. The true God is completely separate and distinct from any kind of evil, so much so that he can't even be tempted, much less tempt you. So when you're tempted, James is saying, it is not coming from God. So don't blame him like the culture around you blames their gods. Don't do that. So something old we should let go is blame shifting. Okay, here's what that means. This is harder than you think. If you let go of blame shifting, it means you have to start looking deep down inside. Because if you're going to own responsibility for your own sin, that journey is always going to take you straight down into your heart. Which is exactly where James goes next. 
So from something old we should let go, just blame shifting, to something deep we must understand. Look at these next three verses. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Okay, there's so much in these three verses. Honestly, it's all important. We're gonna break it down line by line, but you gotta really screw in your head. Like, you know, think hard with me. Use your brain in this because there's a progression here that actually is, for some of you in the room, is gonna unlock some things for you. I, I honestly believe it. So first, let me just help you understand in this first line, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Okay, let's start with the last word first. I wish the uh, New American Standard, which I'm reading from here, didn't use the word lust because when we hear that word, we think of one thing. Now, the original, that word, if you look it up in the dictionary, it actually has a broader context from that. The way that word was used a couple generations ago was, was broader than how we think of it today. So it's not just referring to sexual desire that's, you know, twisted, although it can be that. It's much broader. The Greek word is epithumia, epithumia. Well, why do I bring that up? Because that word simply means deep desire. Epithumia means a strong desire for something, and it's a morally neutral word. Epithumia is not a bad word. It's not lust in that sense. Epithumia just means a strong desire for something good or something bad. So think about um, Mark. In, in Mark's version of the Last Supper, in Mark's account of that recording of it, um, he has this line where, where Jesus comes to the disciples, and he says, I eagerly desire to have this meal with you before I suffer. The eagerly desire, epithumia. So Jesus is eagerly desiring something good. But now what James is saying, and the way, the way the word is used a lot of times in the New Testament, is an eager desire or a strong desire for something unhealthy, something bad, and that's the context here. So I like the, most other modern translations don't go with lust, they go with desire. But I would actually, in this context, I would take it a step further and I would translate it corrupt desire. Because in this context, he's not talking about good desires. He's not talking about Jesus, I eagerly desire to be with you in this meal and have fellowship and communion. He's talking about some evil desires that were corrupted desires. So here's how I would translate or paraphrase verse 14 for, for what it's worth. You know, But each one of you is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by corrupted desires deep inside of himself. You have corrupted desires deep inside of yourself. Did you know that? Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, now, what's so interesting when you really think about this and you dig down is what James is saying is, don't look externally for the source of temptation. Look right deep down in your own inner desires. So I want to put back on the screen, you, Kevin, you can go ahead and put this up. I want to remind us um, something we talked about in the fall. We did a whole vision series in the fall, and, and it's un, un, you know, unveiling our mission statement, which is to glorify God and make disciples by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. What is that all about? Well, this is your heart men and women, in your broken, fallen state. The Bible says your heart's not just the romantic part of you or the emotional part of you. It's actually the core you. It's the inner you. So the scripture actually uses the, the phrase, the thoughts of your heart. 
sometimes, the choices of your heart, the emotions of your heart, and certainly the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. There are other places that talk about the desires of your heart. All this put together is your heart. The problem is in your sinful, broken, fragmented self, which we're all sinful by nature, we're born into this brokenness, You are not whole. You are fragmented. You are fractured. And so Paul says, I do not do the things I desire to do. Paul is saying, I've got some good desire to honor God, but I'm not choosing it because there's separation. There's sin that's that's keeping that. James here is talking about there are also some bad desires, some unhealthy desires that you have, which we know is also true. So here's the human condition, right? Illustrated behind me, the human condition. Apart from the work of regeneration in Christ through the Spirit, there's something significantly disjointed about you. And part of what that means is you desire some things that are unhealthy. You do, you know. I've been experiencing that this week. I've been doing this diet thing because, you know, it's January and I want to drop the pounds that I gained in the holidays and Jody and I are counting points together. And I, I just want everything. Like everything I'm like, yeah, I desire this. And then I look it up and it's a ridiculous number of points. It's like, what can I eat? The list of things that I can eat, I don't desire. You know, I'm just like, I'm messed up inside. You know, this is the human condition. Now, the Bible never says that all of your desires are corrupted. Okay, can I say that again? Not, desires aren't a bad thing. You, you, you deep down desire some things that are good. You desire life. You desire relationships with people. You desire to be reconnected with your heavenly father. You desire these things at your deepest heart level. And you also desire some things that are not healthy for you. You know, uh, here's, here's the way that I would say it. Part of the depravity of human beings in our fallen condition is that our hearts tend to be bent to desire things not healthy for us. Not the whole story, but that's part of your fallenness, okay? Now, here's where it gets interesting, verse 15, okay? I mean, I I think verse 14 is pretty interesting, but verse 15 is even more, maybe. Then when lust has conceived, now keep in mind, desire, deep desire, not just sexual lust. When deep desire has conceived, what does it mean for a desire to conceive? We'll talk about that. It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Uh Uh-oh. Like James is saying, there's a chain reaction that starts down here in this part of your heart that ultimately is going to lead to death, not life. That's James 1.15. Let's unpack it. Let's talk about what does it mean for desire to conceive. Let's start there. James is using a metaphor, metaphor of human reproduction. Okay, so think about human reproduction. A conception is when Two human beings come together and the biological level, you have a conception that leads to a birth. A birth is designed to introduce into the world newness of life. James is saying this kind of conception does not lead to life, it leads to death. So when that conception is born, there's death, not life. Now, Here's where he's going with this. He's saying there's a very close relationship inside the inner person between your desires and your choices. And this is where the word conception, it's interesting to know what this means in the original language. Conceive in the literal language in the Greek in this context literally means to bring together. 
That's all that it means. And it can be used in a lot of different contexts to bring, so you've got two things that are being brought together. Makes sense for literal conception, right? Also makes sense for the conception of sin. Think about this. I'll read this and repeat it twice just so you can grab it. Sin is created by the union between an unhealthy desire and the choice to act on it. Sin is created by the union between an unhealthy desire and the choice to act on it. You see, your desires, your choices, sometimes when those things come together, if it's outside of God's plan, that's a sin. That's what we call sin. It's missing the mark. Now, I want to nuance this just a bit, and the other service didn't get this, okay? But you guys get me when I'm really warmed up, okay? So um, what can also be true in sin, think about this. You can sin out of a healthy desire that you're trying to fulfill in the wrong way, do you see? So it's not just the union of an unhealthy desire and the choice to act on it. It can also be a healthy desire, but you're choosing the wrong path to find it to fulfill the desire, you see, but there's always a union between a desire and a choice. That's the point I'm trying to make. There's always a union. Between, that's the conception of desire that then gives birth to sin and sin leads to death. So one of the key insights of this text is your desires and your choices are deeply connected, deeply connected. Um, this is where I got the title for the sermon. Someone asked me before first service, man, this autopsy of temptation? What's that about? Here's what it's about. Once you've made the choice to sin and you take the time to look back on your sin after the fact and ask yourself, why did I do that? Why did I do that? If you think about it deeply enough, you will always find that there was some desire for life underlying that sinful choice. And it was either a, a, a corrupted, twisted desire for something that's not healthy for you, or it might have been a good desire that you went about the wrong way to satisfy. But if you could cut open the sin and do an autopsy, you're gonna see a desire is what drove you to that thing. Okay, you tracking with that? Let me give you an example to really help you. Let's think about lying for a minute, okay? There's something that we can all kind of identify with. Like, no one says they're a liar, but everybody lies. At some point in time, you know, white lies. By the way, there's no such thing as a white lie. All right, a lie is a lie. Let me give you an example of, of where I'm tempted to lie. You know, and just one, one place I'm tempted to lie is, um, you know, I want people to like me. It's part of my personality. And, you know, we could you know, talk about personalities, but let's stick to the text, Rob. I want people to like me, and sometimes I'm tempted to tell little lies so that people will like me. Let, me. let me explain. Like, I've never lied on a resume or anything like that, but by the way, that's the same idea. But here's where I'm tempted to lie. Uh, guy sent me an email. This is a real story. Guy sent me an email four weeks ago, and uh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with emails right now. I'm trying to get caught up, and I don't, I don't like what that says about me. You know, it means I'm not disciplined enough or it means I'm not prioritizing my time well enough. I, I do care about you all. And when you all email me, I want to read it. I want to respond and engage, but right now I'm behind. And I, I saw this guy a week later and the first thing he said, a big smile on his face, that went right up to me. And it's just like, what'd you think of my email? <laughs> I didn't read his email. And I, I didn't want to say, I'm sorry, I haven't read your email, you know, because what would that say? That would say that I don't care about you enough and I'm a bad pastor. 
the temptation was just to sort of sidestep that a little bit and just, you know, just, just shade the truth a little bit. So the temptation was to say, man, that was really interesting. Thanks for sending that. I'd, I'd love to uh, dig into that a little bit more, and, and I plan to, you see. That can be smooth, y'all. Right? That would have been a lie. Now, you know, you can be proud of your pastor. In this instance, I did not lie. I said, I'm sorry. I have behind on my email. I haven't read it yet. You know, I had to own that. For some of you are like, what's the big deal on that? Others of you are like, I get that, man. You know, I, so you see that if I, if I slice open the sin, the, the, why did I make that choice? I wanted him to like me. I wanted him to think well of me. And then you can, some of you are like, man, I, I, I lie for different reasons. I lie because I just want to avoid conflict because it makes me uncomfortable. Some of you are like, I lie to avoid punishment. Some of you are like, well, I, I lie because I'm, I kind of have a lazy tinge in me. And like, sometimes I don't want to step up and, and, you know, and get, you know, there's lots of reasons that we lie. There's some kind of desire for life underneath you that's fueling you. You think you're going to find life through the lie. Once an unhealthy desire or sometimes even a good desire is brought together with a sinful choice to act on that desire, there's an unstoppable chain reaction. Sin is born, sin always brings death. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Put verse 16 on the screen. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James's pastoral heart is coming out and he's saying, listen, let me set aside my theology cap for a minute. Let me put on my pastor cap. I love you all and I don't want you to be tricked. I don't want you to think that sin can bring you closer to life. It only is gonna bring you closer to death. Do not be deceived. Men and women whom I love. Let's talk about death. In this context, let's talk about death because it's, it is what you're thinking, but it's more than what you're thinking. Most people's minds go to the, the grave, you know, literal, like my, my, um, my, the cells in my body are stopped. I'm done. No more breath. Uh, there's, there's another kind of death that you're probably familiar with in Scripture, which is more of a spiritual death. Okay, and since you're reading death in this context, you might be thinking, if he's not talking about literal death, maybe he's talking about spiritual death. Listen, death is essentially separation. So when you think about death theologically, think about separation. Let me explain. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Okay, physical death is not the cessation of life in the sense that it's not like you don't exist anymore. Theologically, scripturally, what we know, it's, it's the separation of the soul from the body. You're still going to be somewhere, right? Alive in Christ, you're going to be separated from Christ. So physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death, then, is the separation of the person from relationship with their God, with their creator, from the, the spirit, the breath, the pneuma. So, so that's eternal separation from God, what we call spiritual death. You're separated from your creator, from the life giver. That's spiritual death. Death can also describe anything that's separated from its natural state. Okay, let me explain. Um, even in our vernacular, we use the word death this way. Think about this, death of a relationship. Why do we use that metaphor? Why do we say a relationship died? What we mean is we, you, things used to be right. We were together. We were the way we were supposed to be. And then the friendship or the marriage or whatever died and now we're separate. You see, no one's physically died, but you still call it death. 
It's separation. How about this one? Death of a dream. What does that mean? Well, I had a dream of something. And as long as, as it was with me and I felt like I could attain it and it was a viable possibility, I'm united with that dream in a sense. But at some point in time, the chasm of reality got too far. And now the dream has died. I'm separated from it, never to be united with that dream that I chased. So separation. Death is separation. Theologically, death is separation in God's good creation. So separation of mankind from God, separation of human beings from one another relationally, separation even in, in how we were designed to be stewards and overseers of the creation. There's some, been some death in that. There's death all around us in the creation itself. Paul says, Romans 8, the creation's groaning. Here's something deep you must understand. Sin always leads to separation of some kind. Sin always leads to death. This is true for every sense of the word death, spiritually, figuratively, physically, literally. One commentator put it this way, the word death is intended to cover every form of disintegration and final collapse to which man is heir. Every form of disintegration and final collapse. It was sin that brought physical death into the world. It was sin that Jesus teaches that apart from him, because of your sin, you will be eternally separated from God, apart from Christ. It is sin we know from scripture and our own personal experience that creates all kinds of many deaths all around us, things in our lives that are meant to be whole, that are fragmented and separated and broken. How do close friendships become fractured? Some form of sin. How do promising careers die? Often it's some kind of sin. How do communities become so divided they stop working together? Some form of sin, and there's always plenty of blame to go around, as we've already talked about. How do a husband and a wife who care deeply for one another over time become distrusting and, and distant and a little more separate, either physically or just emotionally? It's our sin. It's our lack of wholeness, our lack of maturity, our lack of completeness. So why do we hit this so hard? Because we tend to think our sin doesn't have much effect on us or others. James is saying sin always leads to separation. Sin always leads to death of some kind. Maybe death of intimacy. Maybe death of integrity. Maybe death of trust. Maybe death of hope. And so what, what James is saying is death, separation, is the opposite of life, wholeness. Do not be deceived. You can't sin without it leading to death. You can't sin without there being some kind of fragmentation that results in your own life and in those of the lives of those around you. Do not be deceived. And I would say with my pastor heart, do not be deceived, dear brothers and sisters, whom I love. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to separation. Jesus wants life for you. God wants life for you, not death. Now, we've got one more stop to make in this journey, and I'm glad because it's been pretty heavy so far. 
We've seen that there's something old we should let go, and that's blame shifting. And when we let go of blame shifting, it's going to take us straight down inside of us. So something deep that we must understand is there's a connection between your desires and your sinful choices and death. Now something new we can choose. Something new we can choose. Look at verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be, kind of, be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. These verses are like a breath of fresh air being breathed into a space of darkness and death. Okay, isn't it? It's, I hope you felt a little bit of the relief in this. You know, so far in James chapter one, James has talked about trials from outside and now temptations from inside. Just when you start to think that maybe there's very little hope for any of us in a dark world, the father of lights shows up. Here's what these two verses are saying. And there's a lot of beauty in this and there's a lot of healing in this. The giving God, the, the, the giver the God who's the giver. Remember that from two weeks ago? He's the giving God, not the taking God. The giving God has desires of his own. His desires are for you. Specifically, his desires are for life, for you, not death. And where am I getting that from? Uh, every good thing given and every perfect gift, uh, perfect, remember, means complete. It means whole. You might say that these good and perfect gifts are things he has given that work against the death in you. All right? So, you know, think about your epic movie that you're thinking about, Luke Skywalker and Star Wars, and there's evil all around him, but just at the right time, he gets that word from the Jedi or whatever, or just at the right time, the resource he needs just suddenly appears. Now, this is the, the formula in all these epic movies, and what James is saying is just at the right time, these good and perfect gifts show up designed for your wholeness and life, not for your death and separation. The giving God has desires of his own. His desires are for you, for you to have life, not death. We'll talk more about what those good and perfect gifts are in a moment. Verse 18, the giving God also has choices of his own. In the exercise of his will, that's his choice, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth is a reference to the gospel of Jesus. Just double click on that phrase, that's what it means. And that's what James is talking about, okay? Through the gospel, God promises us a hope and a future, i.e. life, everlasting life, that starts now. Like everlasting life, the, the, the kind of life that's eternal and that will be eternal. Not only does he offer us life, but even now he is renewing us by the spirit and remaking us by the spirit. The word, this is so interested, the, the word that's translated into the phrase brought us forth, you see that in verse 18, the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, is literally gave birth to. He gave birth to. Now think about the contrast of what was given birth to in the previous verses. Your twisted desires giving birth to sin and death. God's desires joining with God's choices give birth to life, give birth to something new. Now, 
the first fruits imagery. You know, he gave birth by the word of truth, by the gospel, he gave birth. So you'd be a kind of first fruits. What is all that, what is that all about? Uh, real briefly, because I got to start wrapping up, but in that context, right, they're so dependent as an agrarian society on the annual harvest. We are too. We just don't know we are because it's so separated from us. We just show up at the grocery store. So you plant the seeds, you do the work, and you're just praying, God, provide the rain. God, make the seeds germinate. And then finally, you know, they, it starts to spring, and you're, the, the food's coming from the ground. It's like, I can live another year. Praise God. You were to take the very first of that fruit and take it and sacrifice it to God as a way of saying thanks, giving it to the one who gave it. We are actually to be first fruits. That's what James is saying. So here's what this means. Those of us that have faith in Jesus have been reborn to be life-giving worshipers, anticipating that the whole creation will also one day come back to life. In fact, at the end of verse 18, uh, this is just a little note here, when it says the first fruits among his creatures, another way you could translate that is among his creation. And Paul talks about this. He says Jesus first in his resurrection, then those that are in Christ, and ultimately the whole earth is going to be remade and spring back to life and be fully alive and whole. You see, so we're the first fruits of a creation groaning. And one day it's going to all be made right and we're the first fruits that are designed to be sacrificed and put at the temple to thank, not only thank the God, but also to point everybody else to life. Point everybody else to the giving God who desires life for them and not just death. Now, all this, this, the good and perfect gifts, the first fruit, the word of the gospel, the word of truth, all this centers on the most perfect gift. The most whole and complete act of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Our passion at fellowship is to help people find wholehearted life in Jesus. Why in Jesus? Because he's the only source. He's the only source of real life. And so here's what this looks like from a heart that's fragmented and fractured and broken in our sinful conditions. And over time, it looks like this. The Spirit is renewing us and remaking us centered on the gospel. Go ahead and hit that next one if you can get that on there. And so our hearts, over time, as we put our faith and trust in Christ and walk with him, become transformed And our thoughts are transformed into renewed mind and our choices are transformed into active faith and our emotions result in healthy relationships over time. Not perfect, but healthy and growing. And look at this last one, our desires. Epithemia, our deep desires over time transformed into a satisfied soul. And from that place, men and women, you can make new choices You can choose life and not death. That's what this means. I want to read to you another verse out of Psalm 103, which was read earlier, a different verse read earlier. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He satisfies your desires with good things So you make new choices. Your youth is renewed like the eagle so that your cycle of sin's no longer stealing your joy and sapping your strength, you see. Now I gotta wrap this up because I've looked at the time and never look at the time when you're 
on a roll and passionate. And I looked at the time, but I got to stop. Here's what I want you to do is just pull out this coin. Pull out the coin if you have it. If you don't have it, that's okay because you know what a coin looks like. And, but, it, but it's nice to feel it viscerally in between your fingers. There are two sides of this coin, the faith side, the work side. How do I engage in my temptation in a, in a wholehearted way with faith and works? Okay, because most of you have been trying to fight temptation with only your own works. Doesn't work. If you haven't figured that out yet, it doesn't work. How do you actually engage in this? Well, it starts with faith. Faith in what? Faith in Christ, specifically faith that, that what James is saying in, in James 1.17 is true. The father of lights desires life for me, not death for me. Do you believe that? Every good and perfect gift, everything in your life that truly holds life for you is from him. Now, this is enormous Guys, if you don't believe this, you'll never resist temptation because you'll, you'll think about the commands in Scripture, the Word of God, you'll say, well, I know this is wrong, but I don't think the commands of Scripture, they're, they're either irrelevant for me or they're oppressive. But if you believe that the God who breathed out the Scripture actually desires life for you, then these become words of life. And, and even when they seem like, that doesn't seem like that path is life, but I'm going to put my faith in that path because the one who spoke this is the one who desires life for me more than anyone else. That's the faith side of engaging your temptation. All right, that's a huge deal. What's the work side of engaging your temptation? Well, it's not willpower, okay? At least not initially, not and the most helpful thing that I could share with you, what I think is the most helpful work in your temptation is in the moment you are tempted, I want to encourage you to invite the Father of lights into that trial with you. Let him walk with you. Well, Rob, I don't want to invite God. I don't want to talk to God in the moment of my temptation. Yeah, that's right. Why don't you want to talk to him? Because you, you, you know what he'll say. And he, listen, but here's what he's going to say. He's not going to condemn you. He's going to give you courage to choose life. He's going to speak words of life to you. So literally, here's what you can do. Is like, like, this is your prayer. This is your work, because prayers work. Okay? And say, God, I, I need to believe, and I want to believe that you have life for me, but it sure seems like this other path over here, this little temptation thing, that that's what I really want. Would you change my desire? Would you help me not choose the path of death, but would you help, help me choose the path of life? I need help. I can't do it. So by your spirit, would you help me? Y'all, that's a work, you see. That's a work. Invite the Father of lights into your moment of temptation. And that's exactly what I'm gonna invite you to do as we close this service. We call that, by the way, active faith. It's like, I believe this, so I'm gonna act on it. And, and all we're gonna talk about today is just praying. Let that be your work. It's just inviting the Father of lights into your temptation. So here's how we're going to end the service. Um, in a moment, I'm going to have everybody stand because I want to pray over you. And then after I pray over you, we're going to give you three or four minutes, maybe five minutes, for you just to pray on your own. And uh, if you want to stay in a standing posture of prayer, that's great. You know, if you want to sit down after I pray for you, you're welcome to sit down. Luke's going to be up here playing a little bit. In fact, Luke, why don't you go ahead and come up? Um, here's a couple other choices, and I really want to challenge you. For some of you to actually live out your faith today, you need to take a step, okay? And this isn't about like calling anybody out. We all struggle, all, all. Here's a step you can take. We've got these, you know, um, kneelers that are down here, and you can just come forward and pray down here. Here's what you're doing when you do that. You're actually, you're saying, God, I'm going to physically move my body that corresponds to my heart's desire for freedom or for life. 
in an area of my life. And it, maybe it's about a temptation. Maybe it's not about a temptation. Maybe it's just about some other struggle you're going through or a trial that's coming from external. It could be a number of things. So when, after I pray, if you wanna come down here and kneel, you come. Let this be a meaningful time for you. Put your feet where your faith is. Some of you, I'm gonna encourage to take even one step further and we're gonna have two couples down here, a couple on the, my right, a couple on my left. And go ahead and, go ahead and come on. Uh, stand here if you're on our prayer team. Just come on forward and go ahead and spread out down here. Thank you. Uh, come down and just ask for prayer. You can share as much or as little as you want, okay? But you can't walk it alone. You can't walk it alone. And this is an opportunity for you to be prayed for. So whether you stay in your seat, standing or sitting, whether you come forward and kneel, let's just fill these kneelers up, man. Let's make this a time. Or whether you want to engage one of these couples over here, I want to encourage you to, to let's do some business with God. Let's pray. Let's invite him into our struggle. Let's express our faith. Let's be active in our faith. Let me start for you. Father, I'll go ahead and stand up, men and women. Father, uh, as they're standing up, my pastoral heart for them is life, not death. And I know that's just a tiny drop of your heart. You know, and I feel it inside of me. So, Father, I know that you must be feeling deep desire in the room, for, for the men and the women in the room that, that, have, that these some things in their lives have been robbing them of joy, robbing them of life. And, Father, they need to turn and they need to take steps away from those things and step towards you. Would you give them the faith to do it now? For those that you would call to come forward and kneel, may they be obedient to you this morning. Those that they need someone just to walk alongside them, maybe it may be obedient to you and come forward and just be prayed for in these few moments. And we give this time to you in Jesus' name. All right, men and women, come on forward. Stay where you are if you want. Come find someone to pray with. Let's use this time.